welcome to the Sociology and Animals podcast series. In this program, we speak with folks specializing in the sociological study of animals and society in an effort to document and explore how research in our field is applied in the real lives and careers of sociologists. My name is Dr. Corey Wren. I'm currently chair of the Animals and Society section of the American Sociological Association. But this podcast is coming to you from Canterbury, England, where I have been living since 2019 after accepting a position as lecturer in sociology with the University of Kent. Our field is growing, but it is still small and doesn't always elicit support from colleagues, prospective employers, editors, reviewers, grant funders, and so on. My aim with this podcast is to challenge this institutional discrimination and provide some insider insights into making a career out of animal studies. Not that long ago, the idea of a career in animal studies would have seemed impossible, if not outlandish. It is my aim that this podcast will serve as a sort of informal virtual mentorship for folks interested in learning more about the sociological pursuit of animal studies. So without further ado, let's meet today's guest. It me, Corey Wren. So welcome back, everybody. This is our last episode of the series. This is aka our epilogue. So originally, I was just going to keep this at 10 episodes. I could have, honestly, I could have interviewed so many more people, but I was trying to keep this as this project at a manageable size, you know, knock this off my to-do list, because, you know, that's me, got to get through stuff on to the next. Um, but I do think that once I get some of my uh, other projects under control, I might revisit this and create a second series uh, where we explore in a little bit more detail sociological topics. But this first series has really been about demystifying what it is that we do, how we've come to do it, what it is about sociology that draws us here, and most importantly, offering some practical advice to newcomers. In the future, I'd like to take it to a more intermediate level and start investigating some core sociological topics from a critical animal perspective. And I think that would be really interesting for um, us to learn from one another. But for now, uh, this episode is going to summarize what we've learned. I'm going to be looking at some of the barriers we've faced in sociology, um, some of the positive things that we can be focusing on. I'm also going to be rehashing some of the strategies that we've covered and give a little bit of along the way of my own personal journey, how I got here, and just kind of offering some kind of anecdotal advice. The first thing I'd like to do is, huh, because it's the Corey Wren Show, tell you all about me. So you've gotten a little bit of my background through the conversations I've had with other folks, but I want to just very quickly summarize my career path because I think that it is typical in a lot of ways, but atypical in that I have really scored the dream job. And I want to highlight that kind of, hey, it's possible. So I turned vegetarian at 13 when I saw a cooking show. It was Frugal Gourmet, for any people who remember. It's an old show on PBS. And he went to a butcher shop, and there were pig's heads hanging in the window. And I said, made the connection. I said, I'm not eating meat anymore. And I remember my mom saying, ah, whatever. And I meant it. I wanted to go vegan much earlier, not long after that, because this is the days before the Internet. And I had emailed, uh, sorry, written to PETA. And PETA sent me some brochures, and I realized what happens to other animals who are suffering and killed for non-meat products. And I didn't go vegan then because I grew up real poor, and it was already a big um, pain in the butt for my mom to make special meals for me, buy special meals for me. I ate a lot of frozen fettuccine Alfredo that was a dollar a box. (laughs) I can remember that quite clearly. 
But I, I knew that it wasn't really practical to go vegan when I was still living with my family. So I said, all right, the first day I go to college, I'm going to go vegan. And so that was in August of 2001. So I'm coming up on my 20-year anniversary. I'm very excited about that. When I was um, 15 in high school, we had to dissect a fetal pig, and I refused. And the teacher said, all right, well, after a big... Legally, I think you're supposed to let kids have alternative uh, assessments. And she gave me an alternative assessment to write an essay on why vivisection is good for humanity, something like that. And so I turned in... Get real, lady. So what I turned in was... <laughs> an essay on why vivisection's wrong <laughs> and she gave me a zero so i've had this tension relationship i guess you could say with academia as an animal activist since high school but when i got to college i turned vegan i kind of got active with the animal rights group there it wasn't especially active at the time um, but really when i got into grad school i went to virginia tech as an undergrad and i stayed there for my master's uh, yes i was there for the shooting um, but about that time, by graduate school, the Animal Rights Club kind of came up for new leadership. And so I became the president and really revamped the organization, which had been pretty stagnant. But I was doing at the master's level environmental justice stuff. And it's, you know what, ironically, all these years later, I'm now coming around to um, revising that thesis and I'm turning it into an animal project. So that's one of the things I've been tinkering with this summer. Um, but it wasn't until I got to the PhD level that I was like, okay, now I realize that animals and society exist, and this is something that I can do. Um, I've mentioned in the past that I have I was kind of steered down another path. I went into an environmental program at the at Colorado State University, thinking that that would be more conducive to the research I wanted to do. In a way, it was. I learned quite a lot about environmental politics and uh, globalization, food studies, which is what they specialize in. But I was the only vegan in the department. And when I was in these graduate classes, I was just like, I was just annoying everybody because I kept bringing back the animal issue and people just didn't want, not want to hear it. They want to talk about saving the world, climate change, where our food comes from, but no one wants to talk about the person's the persons who have to suffer and die for the food that you're eating. So that's really where I got started. I realized that this is this is not just about my career path. This is about something that I feel is morally right. And, it, and, and sociology needs more voices like this. So I, as I mentioned in the episode with Roger, I, or was it Nick? I grew up real, I grew up really, really poor. I mean, we, my mom was a social worker, so we were never on food stamps, <laughs> but we probably could have been, uh, but she probably wouldn't have done it because it was embarrassing. But uh, I was on food stamps when I was getting my graduate, when I was getting my PhD, I was teaching at three different universities and still couldn't make enough money to even feed myself. So I have really struggled throughout my academic career. I have student loans out the wazoo. For anyone listening to this and you're thinking about how can I afford to go to graduate school, you might want to think about this because, full disclosure, I'm looking at over $200,000 in student loan debt because I was basically in university from 2001 until 2016. It took all that time to get all those degrees. Um, but I knew as someone who grew up poor, like if I want to get out of poverty, really the main way to do it, and sociological research supports this, is to educate yourself. So you kind of have to fight your way out. So that's kind of my background. I've always been very conscious of this kind of um, interplay between I need to build a career to sustain myself. I don't want to be poor, <laughs> but I also feel like that if I'm going to take this career path, it's going to be for the right reasons, and I'm going to do it for what I'm passionate about, and that is social justice. So I have dedicated my career to advancing non-human animals.
end of period like that's what I'm here to do so while I have sold out in a lot of ways that taking the intersectional approach I don't really I've talked about this in earlier episodes I don't find it's really selling out necessarily because speciesism is inherently intersectional and so this new work I'm doing I just mentioned on social justice in Appalachia which I did my master's thesis on I'm now kind of taking that animal spin and it's just fascinating to me like how human beings have been animalized and how non-human animals have been animalized and how this project of animality has really been very fundamental to all forms of social oppression. So that's my story and if you want to know more about my research, um, you know, check out my website and all that. I'm very, very active on blogging, newsletters, Twitter, Facebook even Instagram, so you can find out about what I do. So I've talked a little bit about some of the barriers that I have faced. I've talked about um, not having that kind of cultural background. I came from the mountains. I was like mountain, this little hillbilly coming into the university and having these wild ideas about non-human animals. And uh, faculty didn't, didn't always take me seriously. Uh, so it really, is a, it really is a matter of kind of knowing what you want to do and fighting for it. And I actually remember when I was getting my PhD, my one of my mentors said to me, why don't you just do Appalachian studies? There's need for that. And I can remember it clear. I told her, I said, yeah, but the animals need me more. They, the animals need me more, and that's where I'm going to go. So you just have to have this vision for yourself, and you're going to have to fight for yourself because not everybody's going to recognize what you're doing is valid. But we know what we're doing is valid. We know that the most important social issue right now is what is happening to non-human animals, not just for the sake of non-human animals, but for the sake of the humans whose fates are tied into what happens to non-human animals and the larger environment. <clears throat> so those are the barriers. What about some of the positives? So I talked, when I was talking with Roger in the last episode, I did clarify that I feel like my university where I am now is quite supportive. I have the luxury of having colleagues like Christoph Daunt, who was on an earlier episode, who have the same drive and passion that I do, and we can collaborate on a lot of stuff. But really what had happened is that the University of Kent is forward-thinking, and it's looking like what is, the, what is going to be the next kind of field that we need to be abreast of? And they didn't have – there's nobody in the department who does animal stuff, and there really isn't anybody who does environmental stuff. And so they were really looking for somebody who – kind of filled a gap. And so that's one thing that you can do. You can have two strategies here. You can have you can go for a department like Nick Taylor did that had folks already doing your work, so there's um, institutional history of it. Or you can find a forward-thinking university like myself and Roger Yates did that's looking for someone who's kind of on top of the, these new frontiers. The other thing that I wanted to revisit was um, Nick, Nick mentioned this at the end of her interview, but also Richard Dwork, that this is something that we're doing because of this commitment we have to social justice, this commitment we have to making the world a better place. And academia is not an easy place to be. It, we have irregular, I mean, this is one of the things, like students think we have it on easy street because we don't have to work on this in the summer, but obviously we're working in the summer. We, we were doing a lot of the research we didn't have time to do while we were teaching. Um, but academia can be a very, very tough um, field to be in. It's extremely competitive. Um, the pay is not always as good as people think it is. Um, we have high levels of stress. Like the, there's research that's been done on academics. We have very high levels of stress. And because we don't have regular hours, we're often working way too many hours. 
Uh, Nick had mentioned that there's a neoliberalization of the university system, and one of the impacts of that is that more and more work is expected of us with less and less support for that work. Um, so they make lots of cuts in administration so that there's fewer people to help us do a lot of the kind of secretarial work, basically. So our workload has increased. Our pay has not really increased to meet that. We, there's only so many hours in the day. It can be very, very stressful. But if you are working towards something that you really believe in and you know is for the greater good, that can be something that's highly motivating. In fact, I kind of find that personally that becomes a problem because I, you just want to work all day long because you want to get this research out there because you know it's so important. The other thing that I want to highlight as far as positives is the growing cultural and political significance of veganism. So again, I mentioned this in the episode with Roger that the, that the University of Kent actually hired me because they were aware that veganism was something that was going to become more and more important in the upcoming years. So that's one thing that you can do is you can look to what is, what is growing, what is expanding, and that is climate change, that is people's concern with other animals, that is vegan food, that is vegan cuisine. You could look at the growing interest in social justice because looking at all these movements that have popped up and really gotten a lot of steam in the past few years, that's something that can also push you forward. So you can be looking ahead at what are some of these political and social developments that you can kind of bill yourself as someone who's going to be ahead of the game. And a lot of departments will like that. And in that same line, we can also look at the growth of the sociological subculture that we have here in critical animal studies and animals in society, where there are increasing conferences and associations and um, online communities that you can be a part of. So those are some of the positives. So now I want to kind of highlight some of the strategies that we've heard throughout the series. And this is something that we can all be working towards if you want to improve your chances of getting hired. So it seems like the number one thing that came up was the importance of building networks, building relationships, finding a mentor. And I've mentioned in the past, it's been very difficult for me as someone who's very introverted. If you are thinking about going down the academic path and you are a shy, introverted person like me, that's going to get knocked out of you pretty quick. The second you have to get up and teach your own class and speak in front of 20, 30, 40, 50 people, unscripted, <laughs> and you have to keep it, come in every day and do it over and over and over. I mean, my personality now is so dramatically different than what it was 20, 15 years ago. It's unreal. So I always tell my students, this is what they call intellectual streaking. And I always tell my students that when we have a presentation coming up, I say, listen, I used to be shy too. I used to hate talking in front of people, but now look at me. I can't shut up. Blah, 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 blah. And they usually laugh at that because they know I got a big mouth, but it didn't always. <laughs> so you need to kind of bite the bullet. And I mentioned in an earlier episode as well, I have this colleague who in graduate school was so good with networking. She was really close with all these professors and lecturers. And I knew, oh my gosh, I knew she was not going to have a, in any trouble whatsoever finding a job after she graduated because of those connections she made. And I wasn't just jealous, but I looked at that and said, this is something that I need to start doing and force myself to do it. And if you want some like actual advice strategies on how to improve your networking, there are books available. So you can go just check out in your library or on Amazon or whatever, and you can find books that give you tips on how to do that. For instance, I mentioned in one episode, you can, when you publish something, and it, for, if you're a student, you've never published anything. If you blog, if you're in an interview or anything on social media you can share that with people but if you actually have something that you can print out 
and write a handwritten note on it and mail it to people. That's something you can do. One thing that I also did is I'm, as many academics are, I'm quite organized. And so I have my daily to-do list and I would have on the top of my list network. So it became a daily thing that I kind of contributed to. So I would email someone every single day to check in. Hi, how are you? How have you been? Have you had any new research out? Or hi, my name is Corey Wren and nice to meet you. I've seen your work at, in such and such place. So every single day I would go in and, and email someone and actually kept, this is really dorky, but this is what I had to do. I actually kept a, an Excel file of all these contacts and I still have that Excel file and I still re use it quite a lot today. So keeping, keeping up with your networking is probably number one. Something else that you might want to try is public sociology. And I've actually had feedback from folks that I've since become friends with after I got hired at Kent. And they told me, like, this was one of the reasons we were really excited about you as an applicant. They went to my website and said my website looked great and professional. And it's pretty populated with a bunch of stuff in it. Uh, and one of the reasons I think that helped me with my, with my networking as well is that I started really heavily blogging in my mid-20s. And I really kept up with it. I had a really strong social media presence and that helped me to meet a lot of people and it was a great icebreaker when I met other academics. I was like, oh yeah, I've seen your website, Vegan Feminist Network, blah, blah, blah. And it just, you already have kind of something that people can kind of anchor you to. So building that helps. When you have, like, honestly, like I have quite a lot of Facebook likes on my author page and a lot of that was not just organic. I strategized to get those numbers up knowing full well that in a very competitive job market, when someone goes and, and looks me up, they're like, oh, wow, look at all these people who follow her. That's going to make a difference. So being strategic about your public persona might be a way to do this. Another bit of advice that has surfaced is to be broadly trained. So actually, the very first full-time gig I got was at Monmouth University in New Jersey, and they hired me because they needed someone to do gender and I have admitted in the interview with Jessica Greenbaum, I actually admitted I didn't have any training in gender. <laughs> I got my training in environmental sociology, but I had taught gender at the PhD level when I was a student. And they saw that and said, that's good enough. We just need someone to teach intro gender and you've done it. So that's what got me that original job. They weren't going to hire me because I did environmental sociology or animals and society or social movements. They needed someone to do that basic core stuff. So if you're not familiar with the academic game, it's basically this is the way it works. You have your core classes that have the most students in them, like intro sociology, like gender studies, like culture and media, like race and ethnicity. Those, those are the core in the class, like theory classes, methodology classes. These are the core classes that every university is going to have to have a lot of students coming into in order to build their degree. And they're going to have to have people who are going to do those classes over and over and over. Now, what happens is, is as lecturers, professors have been doing it for years, they maybe after 20 years don't want to be teaching intro sociology again. And so what ends up happening is that those kinds of core classes go to the junior colleagues. And so that's what you need to build yourself towards is I can teach intro social, I can teach, oh, if you can teach statistics, you're in like Flynn, buddy. And if you can build yourself like I can fill this need in your department, that's what they're going to be looking for. And then the, the senior colleagues are going to be off to do their little pet projects, like a specific class and what they're interested in researching. So that's not to say that you shouldn't have your pet interests as well, because all, the other thing that the hiring committees are going to be looking for is, first off, can you teach these core classes? We need a body in the classrooms to do this grunt work, basically. But they also want to see, what can you offer our department that's new? 
Can you fill a gap? Can you build on an existing strength? So when you go to apply to these jobs, you have to go and really familiarize yourself with the existing faculty, what kind of classes they teach, and how you might realistically fit into that. If you're coming across the issue when they're looking at your CV and they see a bunch of animal stuff, then one of the things you're going to need to do, this is something that's popped up quite a bit as well in our past interviews, is to highlight the intersectional nature of what you do. So you're going to have people who just don't give two hoots about non-human animals. They just don't. But maybe they do care about climate change or maybe they do care about identity or maybe they care about whatever else. You need to be thinking about how what you're doing is not just about non-human animals, but it's also speaking to larger sociological questions. So become more generally trained and aware and ready to answer those tough questions. Just to give you an example, in my interview for Monmouth University, oftentimes you have to go give teaching demos. And at the end of my teaching demo, I actually gave my demo on animals in society, which was a risky move, <laughs> but I did it. Um, and at the end, the, hire, the woman in charge of hiring me raised her hand and says, well, and you know she was just kind of playing the student here. She says, well, what about those of us who want to eat meat? Because she's basically challenging my politics. And so you have to come up with some wishy-washy bullshit about, oh, you know, in your mind, you're like, don't eat meat! <laughs> but you know, you got to be prepared for that. you got to be prepared for... Um, faculty and students who don't care or faculty who are afraid that students don't care. I think students are a lot more receptive. Another thing for us to consider is perhaps non-academic career paths. So most of this series has been geared towards people who might want to go into academia because many of the people I've interviewed are academics, but I've also interviewed people who, are, who have done other stuff. If you want to go into academia, one thing you need to be crystal clear aware about is the fact that the university system is currently dying. It's not, it's not what it was 20 years ago and in the future, who knows. But the tenure system is basically under collapse in the, in the United States. The UK system does not use tenureship, but in the UK and in the US and I think elsewhere in the world, we are moving more towards adjunct teaching and online teaching. So the academic um, career is not what it once was. So you need to like sit down with your advisor, your mentor, and really speak seriously about what are my odds of actually getting hired in academia because the odds are, are against you, if I'm honest. Um, just to give you an example, in order to get that job at Monmouth University, I probably applied to 300 different places. And in order to get this job at Kent, it was probably 200. It, I mean, hundreds, hundreds and hundreds. I mean, in the amount of time that goes into those applications, it's unreal. So you need to be thinking realistically because honestly, I think a lot of getting a job in academia is a bit of a crapshoot. You do your best, you strategize, you prepare as much, as much as you can. But at the end of the day, like the job that I got here, I would not have got if the guy who was doing environmental politics hadn't retired. They, it just happened to be a guy specifically doing what I was doing that left and, and created a hole. There are a lot of advice books that you can buy on this. Um, there's one blog and book called The Doctor Is In, and it's an anthropologist who got out of academia, but she had been on so many hiring committees, she had all this insider information, so she created this book. It's a wonderful resource, and she speaks very frankly, and she also offers um, counseling for a fee and helps you with your papers and your letters and whatever else to have a strong application. Um, but one of the things that they advise is to create a game plan. Say, okay, I will invest this much time, energy, and money into trying to go down this career path, and if it doesn't work, here's my backup. And you, what you don't want to see is that you're in this for 10 years adjuncting, making very little money and relying on food stamps like I did, and just think, one day that job will come. 
maybe at some point it jigs up and you're going to have to realize that this is not going to work out for you and you go into another field. And that doesn't mean that you're no longer a sociologist. Sociologists go on and do this kind of research and writing and public performances in all kinds of different fields. We had someone who was working in a nonprofit, Trent Grassian, who was in our first episode. He works, he's worked for several nonprofits and he does exactly what I do. He sits down and interviews people. He does content analysis. He runs statistical analyses and he creates documents that he hopes will be able to change the world. Something else that popped up was the, maybe you want to consider working abroad or studying abroad. There's funding available. That's the other thing I didn't know because I didn't know anything about the university system that these, there are programs out there that will give you money to come (laughs) and they will pay you. So maybe you want to broaden your horizons and look elsewhere. So a few more strategies on how you might advance your career. So again, this goes for academic or non-academic. This is, this, all this can be useful, but the publishing part is probably more towards academics. But I will say the folks who've gone on to work for nonprofits have published and that's something you can put on your CV and say, look, I, here's evidence that I can write professionally and that my, my work matters. So even if you don't want to go into academia, I think it's worthwhile exploring publishing. There's a strategy to publishing articles and I could do a whole episode on that. But one of the number one things that I tell people is perseverance is key. If you send your article out and it's rejected right away, flip it around, send it to somebody else. Obviously, like you want to revise it and make it better, and that improves your chances. But what I want to say is that per- pers- persistence is key, perseverance is key, keep working at it. This is one of the things that's very intimidating. When I published my first journal article, it was very intimidating. But then once you do it once, you realize, oh, it's nothing to it. And that gives you the kind of courage to keep going. Obviously, you want to get in the best journals you can. If you're a graduate student, it's going to be unlikely you're going to hit one of the bigger journals. The very top tier journals, I mean, some some folks are in this career for 25, 30 years and never make it to those top journals. But that always is the aim. The higher up you go, the more prestigious the journal, that's going to be better for your career, helps you with your employability and for promotions. And there are websites available where you can actually search. You can go to the actual journal and they will have the statistics on their about page, but you can also find there's um, websites out there that catalog all the different journals. You can just do a search in the search bar and it will tell you like what's the caliber of this journal. But there's basically like three tiers of journal. There's the super top ones, the most influential. There's the second ones that tend to be a little bit more topic specific. And then there's a lower tier journals where they have a very high acceptance rate. They don't reject many people. Oftentimes they're open access and there's a value to that as well. So for instance, the animal studies journal, I would consider third tier. It's open access and you really have a good chance of getting accepted. But I like that about it because sometimes I have something I want to publish that I know is super specific and it would not be of interest to other journals, but it would be of interest to my community, my research community. And also if it's open access, activists can get to it. So that's just something to consider. Maybe do a a mix based on your, your preferred career trajectory. The other thing that came up quite a bit was the importance of conferences. So you definitely need to be making making these conferences whenever possible. Uh, we've talked about if you can't do conferences because, yes, they're expensive. I mean, really expensive, outrageously, offensively expensive. If you can't do them, if you can't afford to go out of pocket, if your university does not provide any funding, um, if you're not able to apply for any kind of scholarship to go to these, then do the online ones, do virtual ones, because anything is something to put on your CV. The personal, the in-person ones tend to be better for networking purposes, 
But even if you, like right now it's during lockdown and just to keep myself looking active, I've applied to a few online conferences. Whereas last year I did a bunch in person. I said, I'm worn out financially and emotionally and I'm not doing that again next year. But then COVID happened and they did all of them, all of them online. I was like, okay, well I can continue to be active without having to spend any money <laughs> or go anywhere or leave my cats behind and all that kind of mess. So you want to be thinking strategically about conferences. Um, I mentioned in a previous episode, you want to go for the top ones. So you may, you've got to do a sociological association one if you can aim for that. And they tend to be very in inclusive to graduate students. So don't be intimidated if you're not a full-blown academic. That's one of the aims of the conferences is to support, is to support um, students and early career folk. And the last thing that I wanted to highlight as far as your strategies is reading. So Roger, Roger and I talked about this a little bit. Um, but you really need to educate yourself and you really need to familiarize yourself with the existing literature, with literature that has nothing to do with animals, with literature that does have everything to do with animals. Because we've seen two kind of themes in this podcast. The first one is what are the new hot things that are happening in our field? And so, you know, intersectionality came up quite a lot. Black feminism came up quite a lot. Decolonialism. But on the other hand, the other thing that we're seeing is that people who've been going back and revisiting the classics. So we have folks like Elizabeth Cherry, who's done a lot of stuff on Bourdieu. Uh, we have Jessica Greenbaum, who's done a lot on Goffman. And we've seen some uh, new work on Karl Marx. Like uh, Bob Torres's book was mentioned. So I guess that's all I want to offer here as far as strategies. And, you know, anyone's welcome to email me if they like, and I can offer a little bit of informal advice. But the number one thing I would say is if you're looking for more specific advice about how to publish books, how to publish journals, <clears throat> journal articles, how to do a job application, there are services available for that. Your mentor should be available for that. I will also say this. If you feel like you're confused and your mentor is not really helping you along or explaining things to you, your your supervisor, whatever it may be, find another one. So a lot of what I learned, I learned the hard way through accident and also through reading and looking up books on career advice for people who want to go into academia. So if you want to learn more, you might have to take some initiative here and, and, and teach yourself. Teach yourself and, and ask the right questions. And the other thing is persistence is key. I've said it three times now. Persistence is key. Publishing books, publishing journal articles, getting a job offer. You just have to keep going. And like I said, I had hundreds of applications in, dozens of interviews before I got where I am today. And there were lots of times where I thought I was going to have to give up. I was like, there's just, I can't keep doing this. And the job, job interviews were just not coming in. And then one day they came in, <laughs> just like all of a sudden, boop, 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 boop. It was just like the way the timing was. But in that time when I was feeling just really, really, really cruddy, I remember saying, all right, I'm going to give it this much more time, and then I'm going to go the nonprofit route because I've got to go do what I love, and I don't feel like I'm going to be able to flourish here. So I just want to kind of, again, doing this intellectual streaking, that was the purpose of this podcast is, you know, you look to the folks who are where they are, and you think, wow, they just got there because – you know, they're so much better than me. But we all have imposter syndrome. We all feel like, gosh, do I really belong here? Am I really good enough to be here? Especially if you're a woman, a person of color, if you are coming from a poor background like myself, you never feel like if you really should be there. But you do. You should be there. <laughs> That's the name of the game. So I really wanted to push back on that imposter syndrome, that mystery surrounding what we do, and be honest that it's not easy to do what we do. It is difficult to focus on this kind of marginal topic. 
It's difficult if you want to go the academic route. It's difficult to make a career, period. <laughs> if you've never even had a, a full-time job before, I hear you. It's not easy to get where, to get one. It's not, it's not easy in this day and age, right? So I have friends who've graduated who are not even sociologists, and they're really bummed because they don't have the career they want. And I'm like, well, come on, who does? We live in an economic time that is unprecedented. So it's just difficult in general. But you got to keep persisting and have a and basically persist to the point of realism and then have a backup plan. Think about what else could you where else could you go with these interests and these passions and these tools that would that could you could see yourself building a life around it. I'd love to have you in academia though because we we need more folks like you who care about non-human animals enough to listen to this podcast at the end of this rambling um, diatribe that I've offered. We need more people like you to listen. I really wish that I had more people along my path that had helped me with these really practical bits. Like, this is what you can do with this degree. This is how you get that degree. These are the strategies that you need to employ. I didn't really have that all of the time. And I often look back and wonder like, gosh, what would have I done differently? Where could I be today? I think in the end, this is a success story. Every day that I look out my window, like right now as I'm recording this, my desk from home overlooks the Canterbury Cathedral, which was built 1500 years ago. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And every night the bells go off. In the morning, the bells go off. And I sit here and think, how in the actual fuck did I get here? And it's just every day I wake up and it's like I've won the lottery and it's everything I ever dreamed of. I work in a job where I love my coworkers. I love the city that I live in. I love the work that I do. I get to teach environmental politics. I get to teach animals in society. I get to teach social movements. And I write and research about non-human animals for a living. If you had told me that and when I was 17 years old going off to university for the first time, hey, did you know you can actually specialize in animal rights and you can do that for the rest of your life? What would I have done differently? I, who knows? Ultimately, I got in a place where I'm quite happy. So I don't know, maybe what else could I have done? But I think that it would have helped me a lot to know, like, this is a path that you can take, a legitimate path that you can take, and the the stream is possible. So maybe it's not in academia. Maybe it's in a nonprofit. Maybe you're working for a community. Maybe you're working for the government. But the animals need you. So with that, guys, I'm signing out. And uh, until we meet again. Thanks so much. Much love to all of you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Sociology and Animals. I hope you found it helpful and informative. If you want to learn more about the sociological study of society and animals, you can check out the website of the Animals and Society section of the American Sociological Association or my own website at corylebrin.com. You can also check out the International Association for Vegan Sociologists, and the website for that is vegansociology.com. Feedback and suggestions can be submitted to myself at coreyren at gmail.com. That's C-O-R-E-Y dot W-R-E-N-N at gmail.com. If you liked this episode, be sure to share the series with others. The music for this podcast was provided by Ode to Sleep, a band local to where I live here in East Kent, England. Ode to Sleep explores various topics with their music, including human and animal rights, environmental issues, equality, and mental health. Their debut EP will be released in September 2020. 
through Is No I N Team Records. Their single featured here is called Captive Audience and is available now on all streaming platforms. Until next time, this is Dr. Corey Wren signing off. All the best.